Hello there. <clears throat> How are we doing? Yay. Seems like kind of a more lively crowd today. I like that. So it makes me happy. So now all we have to do is find somebody to be responsible for David. <laughs> Anybody want that job? Okay. Uh, Usually uh, I'm associated up here with topics having to do with insanity and last uh, time it was immaturity and uh, deviations and stuff. And now thanks to Gary, as was pointed out, uh, they're also associating me with food. <laughs> Seems like every time that he, he pointed out every time I get up here, we seem to have a meal here at Hope. So yeah, I guess I'm okay with that. A win is a win, right? I always told people the hardest part of teaching up here at Hope is trying to hold your stomach in for 45 minutes. Uh, I meant to say 25. I'm sorry. I didn't want to scare you. That wasn't foreshadowing. Uh, we're continuing in a series called Strong to the Finish. And what we're talking about is we're going back into the Bible to pull out the Jewish roots in early Christianity. And part of the reason why we're doing this is because we want to acknowledge and recognize the contributions that the early Jewish converts to Christianity had on Christianity. And we want to respect them for the things that they got right. On the other hand, we also want to see some of the mistakes that were made by the early Jews in Christianity because we want to learn from the valuable lessons that they left for us. So with that in mind, in this series, uh, what we're studying is in the book of Hebrews, and we're going through and just trying to extract some of the lessons, positive and negative, that we can pull out of here. Today's is, uh, I think, particularly interesting because naturally we're going to take this and look at it from kind of a weird angle. <laughs> you would expect no less. So, but our today's passage is, uh, the ninth chapter of Hebrews, uh, verses one through ten. It's printed in our worship bulletins. Uh, the Bible says, now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed, as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time. 
indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. Now, if a person was a Jew, they would read this account in the New Testament about the early tabernacle, which was a tent, or perhaps uh, some of the accounts of what later became the Jewish temple, which had the same paraphernalia, the same artifacts in it. And they would look at this, and this would be a history lesson. All of this religious paraphernalia that they used in this early tabernacle to the Jews were things that reminded them of their history. As you go down that list, they had things in there like some of these things were designed to, in, were representative of their historical efforts to please God. That's why they had the bread, which was called the showbread, and which literally meant face bread. They believed it pleased God to always have food in front of them. They also had the uh, incense that they burned because they believed it produced an aroma that was pleasing to God. And that was part of Jewish culture, was always trying to please God. And then there were other artifacts in there, like the Ark of the Covenant. And in that Ark, they had manna, which historically represented the food that God fed them while they wandered in the desert for 40 years. Uh, so they would think of that. They'd think historically of Aaron's staff that had budded, which was a reference to uh, at one time while they're wandering the desert, they had arguments over which tribe out of the 12 tribes were the religious leaders. So God collected staffs from the leaders of all the 12 tribes, and they put them in against the Ark of the Covenant, and they said, when you come back tomorrow, the one that buds, that is the tribe that will become the priests. And it was Aaron's staff representing priesthood that had budded. So they kept that and put it in the Ark of the Covenant. And it also contained the stone tablets of the covenant, those same tablets that Moses carried down from the mountain, they put into that ark. Uh, so they had all of these things and more that they had in this tabernacle. Now, as Christians, when we read these same accounts and these same passages, I believe that the real fruit, the real benefit that we can get from this is once we begin to realize that these passages for us are not only historical, but they are prophetic. See, all of these things in here were really meant as a foreshadowing, as a revelation of what was to come, which was Jesus Christ. So as we go down this same list and we look at all of these uh these different items that were incorporated into Judaism and into their worship of God, we start to look at all this stuff from a different angle. But we look at it through the lens of Christianity. For instance, one of the things in there was a lampstand, and the lampstand provided light. That makes sense. But who was the and is the light of the world? Jesus. And Christ talked a lot about how light was one of the things associated with his ministry. Uh, another thing was the table with consecrated bread. 
Jesus was the bread of life. And he was the one that instituted communion. And in communion, we know that Christ's body was bread. So uh, it's also a, a reference to future communion. Uh, there's the incense, which, again, was something that was designed to please God. In the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, incense is literally called the prayers of God's people. So instead of just burning something that smells good and pleases God, in the New Testament, we really associate incense with prayer. And that's really what pleases God. If you recall in the Bible, Christ at one time referenced the Old Testament and quoted it uh, with a line that says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. What really pleases God is love. It's not going through a bunch of motions or jumping through a bunch of hoops. More than anything, what God desires is just for people to get along, to love each other. If those of us who are parents uh, understand that, I think very well. You know, are you more happy when your kids just follow a bunch of rules and regulations and jump through hoops? Or are you just happy when they're happy? Are you just happy to see them get along and not try to hurt each other? See? <laughs> and uh, that's what my folks lived for. <laughs> I was raised by a brother. His goal in life was to become an only child. <laughs> I can relate to the bullying. Uh, uh, but that's the incense part, the Ark of the Covenant. You see, Jesus is the Ark of the New Covenant because it was contained in him, in his body, just like in the original Ark, it contained the law, the literal 12 or the literal uh, tablets that had the Ten Commandments on it. And you see, in the New Covenant, it's actually Christ that is that ark. It's also interesting in the Old Testament, the Jews brought the ark into battle with them because they discovered that if the ark was present, they won battles. If it wasn't present, they lost. And in the same way, Christ gives us victory because when he's present, it's not that we win in battle, but the victories that we gain in him are victories over ourselves, victories over our lower nature, victories over sin and death. You see, those victories are actually more important than just winning battles. The manna, if you recall in Jewish uh, history, the manna that they went out and gathered each day in the desert that, that fed them. One of the lessons that God was trying to teach them in giving a manna wasn't just that he was a provider, but it was also to teach them daily dependence because it was a type of food they had to gather each day. And they had to trust that the next day that God would would do the same miracle and give them food again. And if they collected too much based in fear, fear that God, you know, he provided today, but I'm not sure he's going to show up again tomorrow. He's done this for, oh, what, 30 years now, but I still don't trust him. So they, what happened was if they gathered too much or saved too much, it would just get moldy or wormy. So it taught them daily dependence. And similarly, when they asked Christ, Lord, teach us to pray, he gave them the Lord's Prayer. 
And one of the lines in there is, give us this day our daily bread. So the prayer that God instructed us with was literally a prayer for daily dependence, a daily prayer for sustenance. And in that prayer, we learn that God and Christ are our providers, and they give us what we need, and we also can trust them and be dependent on them. Another example of that, if you recall the temptation of Christ when he went out into the desert after his baptism. And it was a great account because here's the devil actually quoting the Bible to Christ, who is God, using the Old Testament scriptures to try and trip him up. That's a crazy scene, isn't it? So these guys are, the devil and Christ are quoting scriptures back and forth, just battling out with the, with the book. And one of the lines that Christ said in the defense of God, he said, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Which is significant because Christ is the word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So Christ literally is the word. And, and the point of that is simply that our daily bread is contained in that word. Aaron's staff was a symbol of priesthood. Christ is our great high priest. So that's another thing that it was prophetic. The tablets of the law. The Old Testament was etched in stone. Christ said when he again instituted baptism, this is the new covenant in my blood. So the other side of communion isn't just Christ giving his body for us, but shedding his blood for us. And that was what contained the new covenant. The other aspect of that is where is the law written according to the, to the Bible? Christ said, I am going to write the law on your hearts. So instead of having the law carved into tablets, the law is literally the New Testament, the New Covenant, is written on our hearts. And that all fits, if you want to get really heady about it, what transports the blood through the body? Your heart. Your heart pumps and pumps the blood. This also, this passage talks about angels of glory. In the Old Testament, as Mike often points out, God did not show up directly. He sent angels. They were his messengers. So if God wanted to show up, he would send an angel, and they would show up, and they would manifest God's glory. An angel would show up and communicate God's message. In the New Testament, God showed up directly. He showed up in the flesh, in a human body. That was God. He manifested himself directly, and his glory was manifested directly through Christ. Uh, another angle on that, if you recall the account of Mary going to the empty tomb after Christ was killed and his body wasn't there, in John's account, he said that Mary walked into the tomb and there were two angels in there. Christ was gone, but there were two angels sitting where his body lay, one at the head and one at the foot. So even in that, just like that Ark of the Covenant that had two angels 
incorporated into the lid of that ark. And they were uh, two cherubim with their wings folded and touching each other. And how, I don't want to say ironic, I just want to say prophetic, that that picture of God in the Old Testament in the Ark of the Covenant was also manifested perfectly in the New with the empty tomb. And that leads to the next part of this. The cover on that Ark of the Covenant in this passage is referred referred to as the atonement cover. But another word for that atonement cover was mercy seat. Because what they did in their rituals was it talks about blood, and you never approached this ark without blood, because what they would do is the cover of this contained what was called the mercy seat, and they would bring their blood sacrifices and and put them on this mercy seat. So when you think about that aspect of it, the sacrifice of blood covered sins. When Christ shed his blood as a perfect sacrifice, it ended up removing sins. And there again, Christ is that mercy seat. And that leads to another aspect of this that's not mentioned, but there was, God is very specific. He has a very tight way of doing things, and he even told the priests how to dress when they went in to this Holy of Holies once a year to offer these spe- this special sacrifice on Yom Kippur. And interestingly, they usually the priests usually dressed in a very gaudy fashion. They had some very fancy clothes. But this one time a year, they actually put on what some would consider to be dressing down. Now, to the Jewish people, they thought it was kind of dressing up. They put a positive spin on it. But the priest that one time a year would just wear simple linen garments, which they associated with angelic beings who showed up wearing white and wearing linen-like fabric. So they thought it was a, a symbol of purity or cleanliness or holiness. But now that we have that New Testament lens to look through, we can see that actually as more of a sign of humility, of dressing down. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was going to go into some place like the Holy of Holies, I'd be dressing up. <laughs> That's, I'd want to wear my Sunday best, and I would certainly put on clean underwear. <laughs> my mama raised me right. <laughs> and... Interestingly, even that was accounted for for the Jewish priest who went into the Holy of Holies. There was even God had him wearing uh, linen underwear, so breeches they called them. So I think that's where we get breeches. So even there, you know, everything fit. But the point of that is in the New Testament, we realize that. Perhaps instead of dressing up and wearing something as a sign of purity, they were really dressing more simply. Because when Christ showed up, he didn't show up in gaudy fashion. He showed up in humility. He didn't dress up. He dressed normally. He dressed down. Which I think is really significant that what they thought was something special became much more ordinary in the 
when we see it through a New Testament lens. And in this, so the, when we look at all of these things and we start to connect these dots, we start to see how this old covenant, just like it's written here today, was really just a foreshadowing of something better to come. And we can see how all these pieces were laid out that perhaps didn't have a, make a lot of sense to the Jews until they saw it through that lens of Christianity. So, this passage goes on to say today that uh, it says uh, the Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. What that means is that if we follow the old covenant, and if we go back under law, then there's a whole bunch of Old Testament rules and regulations to follow, not just about this Day of Atonement, but there's tons of things in there. And all of that was literally shown to have transitioned on the day of Christ's death. Because the, if you will recall in the New Testament, what, there was a lot of things that happened at the hour of Christ's death. When he breathed his last breath on this earth, one of the main things that happened was this huge uh, uh, curtain at that time, instead of a tent, they had uh, they had the actual uh, temple. But there was this huge, thick veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And if you'll recall, that huge curtain ripped from top to bottom. It split wide open. Which, you, I mean, God is pretty literal, and you can't get much more clear than that. <laughs> if you're looking for clear signs or communication, what that did was it opened up the Holy of Holies. When that split, and noticed it was from God's side first, it split from top to bottom. It He split this thing, which was a very obvious symbol of everybody gaining access to God. And I just find that really interesting because God made a very black and white, a very clear-cut transition at the time of Christ's death from the old to the new. Uh, Very literal. And this goes on to say that uh, it also says in here that uh, it talks about the Holy Spirit showing us the way to the most holy place. If you recall, Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, no one comes to the Father but through me. So, again, this this really isn't very cryptic. It's not hidden. It's very obvious for anybody that has the eyes to see. The old way to God was through keeping the law, and it didn't work because we needed something better. And that's why the new way to God is through Christ. This goes on to also say that, uh, and, and let's just take another look at that too. 
if the old tabernacle was a tent where God lives, then where's the new tabernacle? Now, some might say, well, Jesus died and he rose and he went to heaven, so maybe it's at the right hand of the Father. Maybe it's in heaven. But you see, this is where I think it really gets interesting in Christianity, because the whole point of Christ's death, he said, is I need to die so I can rise again and then send back my spirit to all mankind. And you see, in sending back his spirit, where does God's spirit live? You see, his spirit which the Holy Spirit, by the way, is, of course, God Almighty, God in the flesh. He sends that Spirit back into all believers, into Christians. So if that Spirit comes into us, then I guess that means that the tabernacle in the New Covenant is in us. The message of Colossians, Christ in you, the hope of glory, the mystery of the gospel. It's Christ in us. Because as we've often talked about up here, you know, and this is something that really got a hold of me a while ago, because I like words. I like how you define words and where words come from. And I don't always pronounce them right, <laughs> but I like them. And uh, so words are important. It's how we communicate. And I was reading something one time, and this question comes up. What is the definition of the word Christian? And that just stopped me in my tracks because I thought, wow, that's a deep question. I was kind of mad that I didn't think of that myself. It was so profound. What is the definition of that word? And I started to realize how many different definitions there are for the word Christian. So now when somebody, I encounter somebody and go, well, I'm a Christian. I go, really? What's that mean? (laughs) What do you mean by that? And a lot of times, they don't really even have an answer. Or other times, well, I, I made an altar call at a Billy Graham crusade, or I believe that Jesus was who he said he was, or I go to church on Sunday. There's, but there's a lot of things that people believe define themselves as Christian. I've heard literally hundreds of different definitions of what that word Christian means. But what's the right one? What's the accurate definition of the word? I believe with all my heart that there's only one right way to define what a Christian is. And you have to begin by understanding what made Christ who Christ was. See, Christ had two separate components, if you will. He had a human body and a divine spirit. Now, some people say Christ was all spirit. He was just an apparition. And that is not biblically correct. That's cult stuff. That's not Christianity. Christ had a human body, and he came to this earth in the flesh. So he had a human body. But there's others that said that's all he had. He was a great teacher, a great man. He was a prophet. But he wasn't God. He wasn't God incarnate. He was just a man. And that also is cult stuff. That is not correct. Because he was and is God, and he had a divine spirit. So you see, when you marry together a human body and a divine spirit, you have Christ. And when he sent his spirit back, 
to send his spirit into us. When we receive that spirit, that's the point of Christianity. And we then become human bodies with a divine spirit. And it is the presence or absence of that spirit that really defines Christianity. You see, with, if we believe that definition, now that opens up a whole other can of worms. <laughs> How do I know if I have that spirit? Or what if I don't have it? Or what's the test for that? And then you get into a whole bunch of other false teachings that... Different religions of form saying, well, this is how you know you have the spirit or that's how you know. But really, one of the main manifestations of God's spirit is love. If you are becoming more loving, that's a great evidence. Another evidence is we start to become more Christ-like. That's good evidence. Yet other evidence of having received God's spirit is a change of desire the change of heart, where we simply find that we don't enjoy the things we used to get off on. Conversely, we want to do things we, that we didn't want to do, like help other people. So having a change of heart, a change of spirit, change of desire, that truly is Christianity. And it helps to know that because there's... A lot of confusion out there, and I'm sure you've encountered it too, on what, how do you get to God, or how do you know you're okay with God, or how do you know you've got this thing? And it helps to understand clearly what this thing even is. And with that understanding then, this talked in here about an earthly sanctuary. And you see, that earthly sanctuary is us. It's God's church. And what I love about hope, when we use the word church, we're not referring to a building. We're referring to a body of people. God doesn't build his church out of sticks and stones or brick and mortar. He builds his church out of flesh and blood. He builds his church out of people. And it's the people collectively that form that earthly sanctuary. So to shift gears here then, to summarize that, in the Old Covenant, the one thing that's different was the priest entered the temple on the behalf of the people. In the New Testament, it's kind of the opposite. The priest, the high priest, Christ, enters us. <laughs> but it all fits, doesn't it? I know it's kind of heady and wordy, but really, if you just take the view from about 10, you know, about 50 feet up, this all connects and makes good sense, I hope. And if not, keep coming back. <laughs> Michael, do a better job of explaining it next week. So, having said all that, here's another simple definition thing that really helped me. Three aspects that you find in the Old or in the New Testament, it talks about God's qualities. It talks about different aspects of God. And you often find three simple words. You find the word justice, mercy, and grace. And simple definitions that we put in the worship bulletin that really help me to navigate this. Justice is simply a process where you get what you deserve. Nobody can argue with justice. Touch a hot stove, you get burned. That's a consequence. 
If you touch a hundred hot stoves, you get burned a hundred times. That's consequence. Now, if your mom spanks you for disobedience for touching the hot stove, the spanking is a punishment. And you probably got that coming too. But uh, there's punishment and consequences. And sometimes what we call punishment is a consequence. As long as it's administered swiftly and and fairly, you know, if I say I'm going to spank you every time you touch a stove, and I do every time, that's really a consequence also, isn't it? That's not a punishment so much. But punishment and consequences are the inevitable result of the law. I mean, we have 60 million laws in the United States. Every one of those laws is associated with a punishment. Otherwise, why would you follow the law? Today, we kind of live in a society where a lot of things, there are no consequences, there are no punishments, and conversely, there's a lot of things going on in our world today that aren't fair and people aren't following the law. But in a perfect society, you would have consequences and you would have punishments. Interestingly, this is where people get confused because when they ask God to forgive them, What they really are asking isn't so much for God to suspend the punishment. He wants them to suspend the consequences. So they're not just saying, don't spank me for touching the hot stove. They say, I don't want to be burned anymore. And even God oftentimes cannot or will not remove consequences. I'll never forget. Remember, they used to, every day in the local paper, they had these letters to Billy Graham. And people would write him, and some of it was pretty good, deep questions. Other times you look at this and go, man, that's not even entry-level 101 stuff. That's like, and But this one, this guy wrote in, I, I should have saved this. He writes this letter to Billy Graham. Dear Billy Graham, uh, I am deep in debt, but God spoke to me and said that he was going to let me win the lottery. So uh, that was how he was going to bless me and get me out of debt. So I went even deeper in debt, and I borrowed a whole bunch of money to buy all these lottery tickets, and I lost. (laughs) And now he's mad at God. (laughs) Okay, so he's writing to Billy Graham going, what's up? (laughs) And... uh, I'm not Billy Graham, but I could have answered this guy's question okay. <laughs> because, first of all, you know, and we'll go, you know, I mean, I think he misunderstood what God was telling him. <laughs> Just an opinion. But what he really was hoping was that God would suspend the consequences, the inevitable consequences of all the decisions he'd made up until that point. And instead of changing his behavior, he wanted to double down and do even more stuff for fast cash. And when that blew up on his in his face, it wasn't his fault, it was God's. And you see, forgiveness is associated more with suspending the punishment, but sometimes if we make bad decisions, there are consequences that aren't so easily removed. And that's just how it is. But there is mercy. Mercy is when you don't get what you deserve. No consequences. And you see, mercy is like the entry level to God. 
We know we're guilty. We know we deserve punishment. That's why we're afraid of God and we kind of hide from him or run from him or cover our sins instead of uncover them, to lie or deny instead of confess and be forgiven. Because we have to start by believing that God's nature is of a forgiving, merciful, loving God. And once we get that, we learn that it's okay to confess to God because he's not there to beat us or spank us. He's there to forgive us and love us. So mercy, not getting what we deserve, is a great thing. It makes us go, ah. But then there's yet another level called grace. Grace is not only when you don't get what you deserve, you get what you do not deserve. Gifts. You see, that is a whole nother level, isn't it? Not only does God suspend the punishment we deserve, but he actually goes so far as to give us so much more than we do deserve. Things we don't even expect. Blessings. Now, here's a great question. Is there grace in the Old Testament? I don't know. (laughs) I'm not going to be so bold as to say, but I will tell you, I don't think so. You can only find the word less than a dozen times, and even then, when it uses the word grace in the Old Testament, it's prophetic, talking about a time to come when there will be grace. So I don't really see in the Old Testament any examples of people getting Good things that they don't deserve. I see a lot of mercy. I do see law. I see justice. But I've never really found grace in the Old Testament. Is there grace in the New Testament? Tons, obviously. And we get to go to heaven when we die. That's grace. We don't deserve that, but it's a free gift. We're given spiritual gifts. We didn't earn them. We didn't conjure them. We don't deserve them. They're gifts. They're free. We're given mercy. We're given all kinds of things in the New Testament. But you see, we're given God's Spirit, and that all is the grace of God. And But here's the kicker. That would lead to another great question. Why didn't God just start with the New Covenant then? Why did we go through all that business in the Old Testament? Why couldn't we just fast forward to the good part? (laughs) Why didn't we start there? Why do we have to go through all this to end there? And there again, I don't know. (laughs) But I think we do have some pretty good clues. And my what I would offer is I don't think it works that way. The practical reality seems to be that we have to go through law to get to grace. I don't think you can start there. There's a really interesting passage. I put it here out of the book of Isaiah. It says, uh, When your judgments come upon the earth, the people of the world learn righteousness. But when grace is shown to the wicked, They do not learn righteousness. Even in a land of uprightness, they go on doing evil and do not regard the majesty of the Lord. That's deep. Because I believe what we can get out of that passage, first of all, 
fallen people get justice. Justice makes sense to fallen people. I'm a perfectionist, and what that means is I try really hard to do things right. And if I screw up, you don't have to punish me. I'm there. All, I'm all over that. <laughs> I'll beat myself up if I do something wrong. So I expect to pay a high price for doing anything wrong. And I appreciate mercy, but I expect judgment. And law and judgment teach us right from wrong. If we start with grace in a fallen state, that doesn't really communicate anything other than I'm really lucky or the cops are really bad (laughs) or it's not fair and I'm living proof of it. There's no lesson to be learned if you start with grace. It's kind of a lame example, but it's the best one I could come up with on short notice. But uh, imagine... If somebody is, if you're a speeder, you like driving fast, you just want to get home, you know, give you an extra 15 minutes to watch commercials on TV or whatever. So you're driving fast. Now, if there's no speed limit, you're, you're in harm's way, but you don't really know it. And you don't worry about getting arrested because there's no laws to break. So you're just out there on the highway. Now, if there is a speed limit and you don't get caught, Did you learn anything? You drove way too fast, took way too many chances on the way home. Is there a lesson there? No. And if there is, it's, wow, that was really lucky. I made it home. Now, imagine if you get pulled over by the highway patrol. Ooh, well, that's a game changer. And he gives you a ticket. Well, I've been there. I don't like tickets, but you know what? I grumble about it, but I can't really, you know, he got me. He clocked me. I was going fast. Now, let's take another example. Let's say the highway patrol lets you off with a warning. Now, that's mercy, isn't it? Yeah, okay, wow. Now I feel good about it. Because <laughs> now I'm driving home going, man, I, that was a $100 ticket, and he let me go. Oh, thank you. I am grateful. Now, if I would have made it home and not got stopped, would I be grateful? No. But I made it home and I got, I received mercy. I'm really happy about that. I'm leaving later getting home, but I saved a hundy. Cool. But now let's take another example. What if instead of a warning, the highway patrol lets you off with an explanation? He says, you know, it's not a good idea to drive this particular dark highway late at night driving as fast as you are. You're overdriving conditions. There's things on the road up there. You know, the road's got potholes in it. You could crash your car. There's a lot of deer out here this time of year. You could hit a deer. We had a lot of accidents out here. Or he might explain how, uh, you know, there's uh, other things going on that that really make you think. Or there's a lot of kids that live along this stretch of the highway, and sometimes they're riding their bicycles late at night. So if he explains it, you might get away from that and think, you know what, that cop's right. I should slow down. And it might actually lead to a change of behavior. You see, I think that's the difference between the old and new covenants. Now, it's not really an example of the cop putting something into you other than knowledge. It's not like he put the spirit of the highway patrol into your body. (laughs) But I think we get the point of if what God really wants is a heart change. 
Not a change of mind, but a change of heart, a change of behavior. And it takes more than just mercy to accomplish that. And that's why as we start to understand that getting what we don't deserve really is the goal, but we only appreciate it and can understand it if we've been under law and then we're set free. Uh, the last example, and then we'll close. Let's take another uh, hypothetical. What if somebody who's incredibly rich offers to take you out to dinner at this very, very exclusive fine dining restaurant, like Morton's in Chicago or Ruth's Crisp or someplace. You know, I mean, it's so expensive, there's no way you could afford to go to this place, and he wants you to go to dinner with him. He offers to buy you dinner. You have four options. One is just not go. <laughs> I can refuse the offer. Kind of like Christianity. There's a lot of people out there that just refuse that offer. The other option is to go and just accept his offer graciously and enjoy it. Relax. He's going to pick up the tab. I'm going to eat. I'm going to enjoy this. I'm going to really have fun tonight. And know that he's, it's all paid for. Okay, we have that option. The third option, you pick up the tab. You can't afford it. It's a bill you can't pay. But somehow in your head, you think, oh, I should be able to afford this. Maybe if I just put it on my credit card and that gives me 30 days to sell my car <laughs> before and my house before that bill comes. And somehow my pride or my fear convinces me that I should be able to pay this. And we're going to pick up that check no matter what. Can't afford it, but we're going to. The fourth option, and this is very familiar, familiar, just throw in what you can. I'll just pull out every dime I've got and throw it on the table, or maybe I'll just offer to pick up the tip. I mean, what's that, 5%? <laughs> you can always tell when there's servers in here. Server, <laughs> server. Yeah, I know, I dated a server. I know. Yeah, it's, uh, what, 20 20%? Yeah, uh, 25? Yeah, okay. So we got that cleared up. <laughs> so, uh, you know, just pay what you can. There's a great quote out there from Charles Spurgeon. He said, discernment is not knowing right from wrong. It's knowing right from almost right. The worst compass isn't one that says east when it means north. The worst compass is one that's just a couple of degrees off. You might not notice it in a mile. You might not notice it in ten miles. But the farther you walk, the more lost you get. The worst scope on a rifle isn't the one that you can't hit the broadside of a barn with. It's the one that's almost right. And you're not going to see it at 50 yards. You might not see it at 100. But when you go for that long shot on hunting, hunting day, you're going to miss because it's just a little off. The worst aspect of Christianity isn't cults. It's not false religions. It's not atheism. It's false Christianity that misses it by that much. And you see, and that's really what they're warning us about here. Going back under law. That passage I dealt with last time, I didn't make that point very clear, but it wasn't just they were abandoning Christianity, but what did they go back to? Law. Law is when I say, I got this. By one count, how many religions are there in the world today? 
some, I, I've Googled it, and one number that came up, I think, was like 3,400 or something, 3,600 religions. I think there's two. There's two religions in the world, Christianity and everything else. <laughs> Christianity and what I called secular humanism, for want of a better term. Remember the lie in the garden? For you shall be as gods. There's, if God isn't God, then I guess I am. All false religion says, I am God, and I am going to forgive myself, save myself, serve myself, and love myself. All false religions put the weight on me. And you see that even in false Christianity. What they say is, I can't really trust Christ to pick up the tab, so I guess it's up to me. I will seek the knowledge. I will figure it out. I will plot my own course to the afterlife. I will make my own deal with God. I will jump through the right hoops. I will rely on my own intelligence, my own strength, my own goodness, my own actions. And if you can do that, who needs God? We are assembled here today not to say I can, to say I can't. And that's okay. Because if I can't, and Christ can. The only thing left is to let him. Thank you. Call the worship team up. We'll close. Lord, it's written that the only purpose of the Old Testament is to help us understand why we need the New Testament. The Old Covenant is to convince us why we need the New Covenant. So, Lord, just help us to Humbly and gratefully accept the offer as you have made it to us. And in response, we just pray to you and say, thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you. Amen.